0: this week on Writers Inc. Some people say you can't teach writing. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe you can teach those tools. You can teach, you know, uh, people how to, you know, what tools work, what don't when it comes to writing. What you can, I don't think, what I think is innate is to be a storyteller. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone if you want to succeed in today's publishing world you need to understand every aspect of the business editing formatting marketing contracts it all starts with a good book then the real work begins join international best-selling author jd barker and indie powerhouse jay thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business the publishing world is changing adapting do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. J.D., what's going on, man?
1: Dude, I hear people are getting sick.
2: I've heard that. (laughs) And it's more than just in your house, I've heard. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it's crazy. It's at the point now where like I'm purposely not reading the news. Like I, yeah. I tend to limit my news in general. Like I've got a, an Amazon Echo on my desk and you can do this thing called uh, flash briefing where you just pick like, a couple different news services and it'll give you like five or 10 minutes from each one. And I like doing that because I can kind of diversify it a little bit. So I've got Fox News on there. I've got Reuters. I've got CNN. Um, so you kind of get, you know, you, you hear every side and then you figure the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, so I, I, I do that first thing in the morning and then I've just got a habit of reading, um, Apple news on my phone and like you know, every single story now is about the, this virus. Like there's literally nothing else yeah. that anybody is talking about. Yep. Um, and I, and I got to get it out of my head because like now it's at the point where like, you know, I'm waking up in the middle of the night thinking about this, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, when, when you throw that kind of thing out there for an author, you know, like we always take, you know, an idea and you throw that what if spin on it and you know, multiply it by 10 and turn it into something like my brain does that whether I wanted to or not. So when I start hearing some of these horror stories, you know, it just it's exponential. Um, I talked to my sister the other day, too, and she works in a hospital down in Florida. Um, and you know, she's just giving me some of the, the stories and some of the problems and things that are going on. So that, that's not helping either. And, you know, like we're all trying to talk her out of going into work. And at the same time, like, I totally understand why she's going into work. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you, you got it's my sister. Like I want her to be safe at home. I don't want her to be in the middle of all this, but I, I totally understand why she wants to be and why she feels the need to be. Um, so you gotta be supportive when it comes to that too. So yeah, this this whole world is getting a little crazy.
2: Yeah, it is, man. It's hard to. At least for me, it's, it's just really hard to do that deep creative thinking. I mean, I, you know, because like you said, you start, your head starts spinning about possibilities and you heard this sound bite from over here and you're starting to think about that. And I mean, I guess unless you're writing like, you know, an, an infection thriller or a zombie
1: apocalypse, <laughs> it's like not really conducive to creativity. And you know what I don't get? Like, I, I figured that this would be the end of all that. You know, like who, who wants to read a book about the you know, the end of the world, about a, you know, a killer virus or something when, you know, that's the truth. That's it's what's really happening out there. Um, but if you look on Netflix, like the top movies yeah. are all, you know, it's Outbreak, Contagion, yes. <laughs> it's this, it's that. Like, I can't even imagine. I mean, t- put CNN on for five minutes if you want to get a feel of that. Like, yeah. I, I can't imagine watching a series about it. Um, and, I, and I haven't talked to my my agent specifically about that, but I'm guessing that they're, you know, they're probably looking for that kind of thing right now, and i don't know if you know like publication schedules are you know, about a year out so I'm not quite sure if this is going to get burnt out and you know people are going to be just completely tired of it in a year from now or if it's worth actually sitting down and trying to write something. I mean, I've always been told it's, it's not a good idea to write into a trend. yeah uh, and, and you know this is obviously much bigger than a trend but it's you know, it's the same line of thinking. Um, so I don't know I guess if I was already writing something along these lines I would probably finish it but I don't think I would purposely go out and, and try to find you know, an idea like this.
2: Are, are you seeing an uptick in your ebook sales over the past couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, quite a bit actually. Yeah. Um, and I'm noticing on Facebook that my cost per ad is, is dropped significantly. Yes. Like I'm, I'm only paying like maybe a third of what I was a month ago. Um, which I guess is good for me, but it you know probably means that a lot of authors are just, you know, they're tightening up the, you know, the, the wallet a little bit and they're just, they're not advertising. So there's no real competition. Um, And Amazon started doing something. My wife pointed it out to me last night. If you order something from Amazon, like books are delayed by almost a month now from a shipping standpoint um, because they're just trying to focus on getting other things. And and I noticed probably about two weeks ago, like, you know, we've got Amazon Prime, and you normally get everything in about two to three days, you know, on the outside. Um, And stuff is taking like a week, a week and a half now. And, uh, but like books, if you try to order a physical book, it'll tell you that it's, you know, four to six weeks before it's actually going to be delivered to you. Um, but eBooks, you know, people are, you know, I mean, what what else are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't <laughs> watch, have to leave the house. Read a book. Yeah. Um, if you're, if you're Dave Morell, you break out the jigsaw puzzles. but <laughs> for the most of us, I think we, you know, we end up reading a lot.
2: Yeah. Even our, I don't know what it's like in New Hampshire, but I, in, in most of Ohio, the public libraries are completely closed. You can't even, you can't even pick up a book on hold. Like they won't, they're not interacting with patrons at all at this
1: point. Yeah, I actually it's, it's really depressing because, you know, I go on that five mile run every day and I, I cut through the beach. And then when I come out on the other side on the, the island here, um, it's the Newcastle Commons. So it's like a big park and our library is attached to that park. Um, and yesterday you know, was like the first time I went in probably about a week and a half or so. And I, I walked the beach and I came out and the park was like totally empty. You know, normally there's people out there and you're just parked in their cars, looking out at the ocean or taking pictures of the lighthouses and stuff like that. Because there's two of them out there that you can see. Um, but there wasn't a single car out there. And then I started walking around just um, following my usual route. And the kid's playground was all roped off with like yellow crime scene tape. Uh, oh. and they, had, they, had, they had signs posted saying park closed. And then I got to the gate for the park and I, you know, I came in from the beach, so I, I didn't come in through the normal way, but like the gates were all closed up. So they actually had the park sealed off. Um, and the library is right on the other side of that, that fence, um, you know, small little library here on the Island. And, you know, there were signs in the windows saying library currently closed, um, you know, so that and you know, the whole island is kind of shut down. Like I think I saw maybe two people you know during that whole five mile. You know, it's about an hour and 20 minutes or so that I'm out there and I saw maybe two people. Um, I walk past the post office here on the island every day. Uh, and it's probably the only thing that's still kind of open. The town, uh, town hall is, is all you know, closed up. Uh, post office, they've got an entry door that you're allowed to go in and an exit door that you have to go out of. and they're only letting like the two people in at a time. Um, but they have to keep it open because we don't actually have mail delivery on the island. The only way to get your mail is to actually pick it up at the post office. Um, but we made some changes here. Like my wife and my daughter, they, they tend to you know, go to the, you know, it's an outing for them. Like they grab the little red wagon and they, they go down the street, you know, it's a quarter mile walk or so to the post office. Um, and that's something that they, they both enjoy doing. And we've had to nix that. Um, you know, cause my wife obviously understands what she can touch and can't touch. But my daughter, you know, like she goes in there and, you know, she's got her face pressed on every piece of glass and she sure. wants to say hi to everybody. And you know, that that's tough because, you know, she just doesn't understand what's going on right now and you can't explain it to her. You know, last night she grabbed me at like nine o'clock and she's like, library, let's go to library. Um, you know, last week she was real fixated on the science center. She wanted to go there. Um, and we, we can't go anywhere. I mean, we're, we're, we're at the point now where, you know, my wife is going out for groceries, but we leave our daughter at home because it's just not worth the risk. You know, even though we know she needs to get out of the house, you know, from a a stimulation standpoint, it's not worth the risk of actually letting her out of the house. Um, you know, so we're, we're all getting stir crazy here. And I imagine you are too. And so is everybody, you know, everyone that's listening to us, um, you know, we're all in the same boat.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's really not much we can do about it. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a stoic approach, but you know, we can't control it and all we can control is our reaction to it. So I'm just trying to, for my, my wife, my kids, uh, the people I interact with, I'm just trying to carry on normally as best I can, but you know, it's, but you, you like, you can't ignore it either. You know, it's not like it's no. not happening. So it's, it's tough.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll st- I, I wrote, um, I finished off that book that I was talking to you about, and I, I wrote the author's note to it last night and I threw some of the current stats, you know, as far as number of infected and things like that in, in the, the author's note. Oh. Um, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious you know, to see where that, you know, cause the, the book will come out a year and a half or so from now, you know, yeah. so obviously this will all be behind us. Um, But, you know, we'll we'll see. I just figured it was kind of a a neat thing, you know, a little snapshot of us being in the middle of this particular story. And by the time somebody actually picks up my book and they read that author's note, you know, they'll already know how this all played out. Um, So I I figured I would throw it in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Also give uh, listeners just a real quick update. Uh, I'm going to start drafting the manuscript. So you and I have been exchanging a few emails and kind of have an outline ready to go. And I don't know if we mentioned this on the air before, but I am, uh, I'm studying Dead Poet Society movie script, and I'm going to mm-hmm. use that as sort of a, a template for writing this first draft in a way I've never done before, which is just dialogue.
1: It's uh, yeah, actually, it's a tip that I use with a lot of my mentoring clients. It, um, I, I tell them to write the, the novel as if it were a screenplay or just write it solely out as dialogue the first time around and make sure that all of that flows perfectly and, and not just read it, but let your computer read it back to you. So if you're using Microsoft Word, you know, there's a text to speech feature or Scrivener's got it, you know, there's a million different ways to do it, um, but listen to it. And you know, make sure that you use that that's where you're gonna you know get your dialogue tight and get it to sound like an actual conversation. Yeah. And then once that happens, then go back and fill in those those other pieces. Um, and there's a couple, you know, Dead Poet Society is always a really good one. Um, there's you know a lot of the Oliver Stone movies I'm a big fan of. He's got one called Talk Radio, um, which has some incredibly good dialogue. Um, and, and there's a lot of those that are that are out there. But right. yeah, I mean, Dead Poets Society for sure is is a is a good one.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's. Somewhat correlated to the story I want to tell, um, but it's uh, one of Robin Williams' best roles, in my opinion. And 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 like you said, um, the the dialogue is is just so powerful in that movie. I thought if, if I'm going to look at one, that might be a good one to do. So,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. good luck to you.
2: Thanks, man. So uh, I think the next thing you'll see will be a chapter one at some point. But uh, <laughs> I got I got to figure out um, you know get my my drafting schedule all set up and and ready to go, and I'll be moving ahead on that project.
1: All right. Well, I've got faith in you. Thanks, man.
2: (laughs) So who do we got on the uh, docket for today?
1: We've got James Rollins. Yes. um, Veterinarian and a guy who likes to dabble with the the written word every now and then. yeah fantastic uh
2: thriller venture thriller writer sort of uh would you say he's kind of like a clive cussler ish kind of uh if you've yeah def-
1: def- definitely in that vein um and as as an author if you're an aspiring author or somebody's published or whatever if you can ever hear him talk you know, at, at a conference he's he's really good at, at that too i know he mentors people on the side as well um but he's just a great teacher yes um and I, I think he still belongs to a critique group too, which uh, it always seems surprising to me when, you know, authors, you know, they hit the New York Times bestseller list and you find out that they're still doing a lot of the stuff that they did back then. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and I guess a lot of that is nobody really knows, you know, what caused it to work in the first place. So you don't want to start messing with all the, you know the, the various things it's sort of like wearing your you know your favorite football team's jersey or yeah, whatever like a superstition supersti- <laughs> Yeah, you know, like a superstition like you know you don't want to mess with the machine so i better yep. just keep doing it all and you know hope everything falls into play but it's it's cool that he still does that
2: yeah yeah he does and uh i think we're gonna i'm gonna ask him about a number of things and if anyone uh if you're not familiar with with uh james rollins the sigma force is fantastic that series is excellent so uh definitely go check that out if you haven't read it yet
1: he's always reminded me of you know a veterinarian by day and maybe
2: Indiana Jones by night kind yeah. personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he wrote. I think he wrote some Indiana Jones fiction. Oh, did he really? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't ask yeah, him. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have it in my interview questions, but I think I saw that in some of the uh, some of the stuff on his site. Yeah.
1: That, that wouldn't surprise me in the least. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right. So should we get into it, and then we'll we'll come back and uh, talk about the the great takeaways we found.
1: Yes, sir. Here he is, James Rollins.
2: What does fried tarantula taste like?
0: <laughs> I see you've been perusing my website. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, that is a, a, a something that I don't think we want on the uh, you know TGIF you know appetizers <laughs> menu. Uh,
2: I thought you were going to just say chicken wings, but uh, apparently <laughs> not. it's not. No, don't no. <laughs> okay. like it. <laughs> Uh, well, you have uh, a new a Sigma Force book out this week, Thank which you. is awesome. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about it?
0: Yeah, you know, this goal to write this book has been going back about 10 years. I knew I always wanted at some point to send Sigma Force to hell. <laughs> Didn't know what, quite how to do that story where, where I can actually justify sending them to hell. So I uh, was... Uh, Reading some background about it, this new discovery tied to Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, specifically this uh, British management consultant that discovered where he believes the ge- geographical location of Ithaca, the hometown of Odysseus, was. And this was relatively this was back maybe three years ago, and thought, well, that was interesting because you know for the longest period of time, everybody thought Troy was a made-up place, a mythical place, and now this guy's you know then of course we found Troy. There's a an amateur archaeologist was digging in a hill on the Turkish coast, exposed some ruins. A decade later, yep, that's Troy. So within a moment, you know, myth becomes history. And then just again, just recently, uh, this gentleman discovers the uh, hometown of Odysseus, uh, Ithaca, and again, they get further confirmation from some archaeologists that yeah, that seems to match exactly what Homer described in his book. So all of a sudden, now we have you know the, the starting place of Odysseus's ten-year journey. Troy. And the end place is hometown of Ithaca. So now what was considered to be mythological is now, you know, historical, geologically accurate locations. So me as a thriller writer, I'm thinking, you know, what else might be real? How much of that, you know, the other part of the story of gods and monsters and curses and witches might also be true. So that became sort of the, uh, the, the jumping off point to try try to tell that story. So I built a whole, uh, sort of fun adventure that crosses from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. So for like us, you know, we can't travel right now, especially not to Europe. So if you want a little armchair vacation, you know, you can pick up the book and have a little uh, fun adventure across the Mediterranean. Uh, the book starts with the discovery of a centuries old medieval ship that's buried about half a mile under the ice of Greenland. The ship's hole contains these mysterious artifacts dating back to the bronze age, including this sort of clockwork gold map that was uh, crafted by these Muslim uh, inventors, inventors that are actually considered even today to be the sort of Leonardo da Vinci's of their age. But this map seems to point towards the location of Tartarus, which is the Greek version of hell. That's where uh, Odysseus visited one point of his journey. And word of the spread, some zealots believe they can use this knowledge to unleash an apocalypse and it's up to Sigma Force to stop them, which means to do that. They have to go where all humans fear to tread, which is to cross through the gates of hell. So that is the new book. Fantastic. Had you had a
2: a long-time interest in Greek classical history, or was this sort of an opportunistic moment?
0: You know, I always wanted to be, you know, I got that assignment, sometimes get in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I remember it, it was a point of moral dilemma for the third grade version of myself. I was sitting at my desk, blank sheet of paper in front of me. Knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. One of the problems I didn't know how to spell it. So I was, you know, that determined third grade. The one thing all third graders hate to do, but I went and got the dictionary and looked it up. That determined to be a veterinarian. But right below that was archaeologist. Ah. So, you know, I've always loved the ancient myths and, and especially Greek and Roman history and, and Egyptian history are personal fascinations of mine. But, uh, you know, so I, a lot of my stories always deal with, you know, the truth behind a myth or you know what does you know, how many ancient stories are revealing you know secrets that are buried as the seed of that story so you know it's a I hate using the word themes I always hated that in English lit but uh if it's a theme of my novel and it's you know it's trying to uncover those buried secrets that are either hidden behind myths or were buried but as all secrets are you know eventually everything comes back can comes back up nothing says buried forever
2: you had a really interesting comment about the end times prophecies and apocalyptic scenarios and, and right. maybe more of a cautionary tale that yeah, there exactly. seems to be more interest in that. Uh, can you explain? The,
0: the, 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 <laughs> yeah, strange thing is the book I'm working on right now. I'm finishing up is an ex Sigma novel and it's called the savage zone. And it's all about viruses. Wow. So, uh, it's a little, a little bit late behind the curve, apparently on now that book's not, a, it's not a uh, pandemic novel. It's more about the, the strangeness of viruses. So you know, I've got a lot of information about the weirdness of, of viruses. So I'm sort of, you know, half horrified, half fascinated with what's going on right now. But in regards to, uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember what, what I got sidetracked. There. What was your question again?
2: Oh, it was about the uh, the end times and sort of oh, the cautionary tale.
0: So uh, when I was researching this novel, of course, I wanted to you know, sort of get the idea of what are various cultures. Mythologies or stories about uh, the end of the wor- end of the world. What are their apocalyptic tales? And what I found there's a, a strange commonality There's a lot of them that seem to have the same story when it comes to the end of the world And what's worrisome for me is that there seems to be a movement of late uh, That or belief that we're already in the beginning of the biblical end times and what's even more worrisome is that there are certain uh, groups that believe that not only are we near the end times, that we should politically and militarily move towards that goal. You know, we should try to get that football across the goal line so that we can uh, usher in the second coming of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm not in any hurry for the end of the war. <laughs> so I, I, mean, I, I hope to discourage that. And it's not just Western nations. Uh, you know, the, uh, the supreme leader of Iran and the president of Iran are both Twelvers. Uh, they believe that the 12th imam is due to uh, arrive any time, and that's the herald that's going to bring about a biblical end times. If the 12th imam is actually going to herald the return of Christ also. Uh, so they are also have a whole sort of a biblical end time philosophy and believe that we're in or near that moment. And they are also uh, you know, making political decisions and military decisions uh, based on that. Uh, and to me, that's a, that's a little scary.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I could. <laughs> that's scary to me too. Uh, you, uh, th- this tale seems to have an epic scope. I- I'm wondering if you were able to stick to your 90 day research period for it.
0: Um, yes and no. Uh, my 90 days of research, I established because I-, I like to research, and if I'm not too careful, I will keep researching, and I will never write the novel. So on the 91st day, I have to start pu- putting words on paper. But as, as any writer knows, you know, you, you're never going to do all your research upfront. Every single day you write a page, you're going to think, oh, you know, where's the Starbucks in Kuala Lumpur? And <laughs> you to go on the Starbucks website because if you don't put the, you know, the Starbucks in the right place, then they're going to, you're going to get that one-star Amazon review. Oh, I was in Kuala Lumpur. That's not what Starbucks <laughs> did.
2: Yeah. So, so you true. try to get as
0: many of those telling details correct as you can. So every time, every day you write, you're always, you know, having to do further research. And it's not even just the 90 days. I have to go back before that. Is a lot of my research back ended in that I, I seldom actually travel for research. You know, I did a little bit for this because this was a very uh, travel intense uh, volume. So I had to break my edict of actually traveling a little bit for research. Most of the time, I just travel for fun of it. And I take notes, I journal, I talk to people, I walk to somebody in a village and say, hey, tell me something about this town that nobody knows about, tell me a secret. And whether it's the anonymity of that, Question or they're me, they, they'll, they'll tell you. And sometimes they're shocking things, and I'll make notes. Um, and a lot of times they become the seeds of an entire book. I mean, that actually happened for Crucible, my last Sigma novel, was because I asked somebody a question in a Spanish village, and that became that book. So in this book, you know, I, I've been to Sardinia and I looked at some some Neolithic ruins that tie to a mysterious uh, people that might have triggered uh, or might have been a, uh, the. A force that destroyed three Bronze Age civilizations. Uh, I went to, I was invited by my Italian publisher to speak in Rome and in a little town of alitri which is right next to Castle Gandolfo. Uh, so you'll see some parts of Castle Gandolfo in there, but that, you know, I took that trip back a couple of years ago. So I wasn't thinking that I was going to be using that, but I took notes. Very cool. I got to be able to do a tour of this Pope's summer palace, use some of those details in the book. So a lot of my research is both before, during, and after, you know, so the 90 days in, is the sort of middle where I do my what I call a big research with the capital B capital R, you know, it's where I'm looking for the big notes about the history, the big notes about the science, making sure that those threads do connect well enough that I can build a story around them. And then the, the tidbit, it's a research I have to, uh, you know, do on a daily basis. And my idea generation oftentimes when I travel is just uh, getting notes, taking pictures, and eventually they begin incorporated into a book.
2: Do you keep those in a certain place? Do you go back through them on a regular basis? How do you manage that harvesting of material when you travel?
0: You know, I, I have journals that are lined up on my on my shelf. I've got, I don't know if I could switch my thing over. Can you oh, see yeah. the little, yeah. little silver cap things over there? Yep. Those are my 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 I call that my idea generating machine. It used to be a cardboard box, <laughs> but I've generated into stainless steel folder things. So there are, you know, there are there are, there are notes, there are things that cut out of uh, you know, some you know, I subscribe to about 24 different magazines, some digital, some online. And I'll print up a print up an article that might be has an interesting bit of history of science or I'll rip it out, throw it in there. Uh, If I'm watching Discovery Channel, National History Channel program, jot some notes, goes in there. Uh, So this is my idea generating machine. So I I try to keep it to that many folders because it'd be very easy for that many folders to become twice that number, four times that number. James Rollins on hoarders, you know, we (laughs) got to that number. So, you know, I'll have to sift through them regularly because I'll find out that, no, Steve Berry covered that history or that science is no longer accurate. You know, we've learned something new or, or it's out of date. So then I get rid of those articles. So I try to, you know, keep you know, culling through them to keep it to that pile. But that's where the magic happens is that, you know, when I'm looking through there, tossing things out, I'll end up having, you know, maybe this piece of science in one hand, this piece of history in the other. And only then because it's a bit of serendipity, I'll go, oh, hey, these things can actually connect. And I will look for those threads, and oftentimes go, "No, I am wrong," or they'll get stronger and stronger, and then I'll go, "That's the story," and that's when I begin my ninety days of big research. I'll see if can I make those threads even, you know, tighter together and stronger. And if I can, then I'm ready to tell a story.
2: Mm, so you've got your antenna up all day long, every day, all, all,
0: all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I've got notebooks I carry with me. I make a lot of notes on my iPhone. I'm notorious for listening to conversations at, at a restaurant, and somebody'll something weird or just a turn of phrase i think it's unique and I'll, I'll i'll make a note of it so you know what is it t.s elliott's quote was what it's a you know good writers steal no what is it i can't remember the exact. good writers steal great writers no good writers borrow great writers steal yes so yes. so that's my goal i just i'm always you know got my intent up ready for you know something that might become a book
2: yeah did you put uh Any or part of this manuscript in front of your critique group?
0: All of it. All. I still belong to the the same critique group. Uh, They were there before I was ever published. Uh, They they looked at my short fiction for four years, uh, stuff that's now safely buried in my backyard. Uh, (laughs) uh, So they've been with me, you know, almost twenty five years now.
2: Wow.
0: So from before I was published, all the way till to this the new novel, and and even the one I'm working on now, they're already critiquing it. Hmm. So. you know, I give them chapters we meet twice a month and I just give them what I have. And, and I, as much as, you know, I would like them to bow down now when I enter the room, they, they don't,
2: they don't know. They remember,
0: they remember when I was writing that crappy short story. So <laughs> uh, was they, the, they still hold my feet to the fire. Yeah. Is great. As they should. They need right? that. And they, and they yeah. often needs an honest set of first readers. Mm-hmm. That great mm-hmm.
2: for that. Yeah. Was there any feedback that came out of the critique group for this uh, new novel that, uh, was an aha moment for you or, or completely
0: unexpected? Well, again, um, I lean on them even for some of the, some of the uh, accuracy of the story is that, you know, I, 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 I I've never been a soldier, uh, despite one good morning television show introduced me as, you know, former ex Navy SEAL, <laughs> uh, just because I happened to have a Navy SEAL in my book, they assumed I was a Navy SEAL. But uh, so, you know, I've got military people that give me uh, you know information, so a lot of the weaponry they've, they've done corrections on. Um, I've got somebody that does a lot of sailings, so there's a lot of uh, uh, nautical stuff in this book, and so they were great to lean on for those details too. A lot of times you'll read stuff on, online and either it's not accurate or you're not interpreting it correctly. So you know, I, I always, I love to research, but I'm also a bit of a lazy researcher. I love to call people up and ask them things, uh, especially scientists, because a lot of times their information You know, if you read a scientist's book, that information is oftentimes two, three years old. Uh, A journal article, even that's three to six months old. Uh, So I I love to call in a scientist and say, hey, you know, don't tell me what you wrote last, you know, last month in in some JAFMA journal. Tell me, you know, look behind me, tell me what's on your lab table right now. Because, you know, when I'm writing a book, that book's going to come out a year later. So even the information I'm getting from him is going to be old. So I need to make sure I'm as least, as cutting edge as I can uh, while I'm writing the book. So, you know, I lean on that, those, those 12 members of our group because they come from all different facets of life. Uh, so it's, it's great to get those 12 first sets of eyes on the book.
2: And the critique group, isn't the only place where you, uh, are both a student and a teacher. I'm, I would love to know how you got into the mentoring coaching
0: aspect, uh, in the writing industry. Um, back-ended into it you know when i I was discovered at the uh, maui writers convention uh, i went there unpublished uh just i never been to a a writer's group before but i thought if i mean a writer's convention before but i thought if i'm going to go to my first writer's convention i'm going to go to the maui writers convention uh so i went there as a you know a lonely person i was discovered there and a couple years later they invited me back to speak and then eventually i did uh uh, a writer's workshop there for a week. It was sort of writer's retreat where it was just me and 12 other, uh, uh, new writers that were trying to, you know, hone their craft. So, you know, I have no, had no formal training in writing. It was all sort of just things I had to learn on my own. And, uh, you know, rather than having everybody have to reinvent the wheel, you know, I, I've learned a lot of, what I described in there, they are tools put in your writerly toolbox. You know, some people say, you can't teach writing. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe you can teach those tools. You can teach you know, uh, people how to you know what tools work, what don't when it comes to writing. What you can, I don't think, but I think is innate is to be a storyteller. Uh, not everybody is an innate storyteller. I think you got to have that you know somehow ingrained in you whether I don't know what magic is that creates a storyteller. Now I grew up with three brothers and three sisters, and my goal was to terrorize them. <laughs> so I was always a storyteller in my family, just mostly to get them to cry. Uh, so that you know was built up and then I began to read, which is like throwing gasoline on that part of my brain. Uh, so I think you have to be an innate storyteller, but I think the, the ability to learn the tools in which to tell to tell the stories better, is perfectly teachable.
2: I know that there isn't sort of one tool to rule them all, but is there one tool you find yourself recommending to to authors on a regular basis?
0: I do. It's it's um, something I learned from when I was reading a book, I think I right up here actually, on screenplay writing. And screenplay writing books are great. Not that I had any ambitions of writing screenplays, but they're great for plotting. You know, I teach you really good how to do the three-act structure, you know, how the beats of of a story. But what I I really, probably the biggest thing I learned from that book was how to bind your reader to your character. Ah. How to make your reader fall in love with that character. So when you put them in jeopardy you know, they're going to be concerned. I mean, basically if you create a character that, you know, the the reader is blasé about or not all that engaged with, when you dangle them over a cliff, it might be a great cliff. It might be a really cool setup, but if you don't care about the character, you're not that engaged on whether they fall off that cliff. So there are what are called sympathy builders. And so I always educate uh, readers in my class about how, how to build sympathy. And they, they sound a little bit like, um, they sound uh, crass but they work so well and I, I don't know if i can remember all seven off the top of my head but i'll try oh just know, a couple be fine yeah sure well like one of the things is and you probably familiar with this is is have your character show affection for to kids the elderly or animals you know, basically, if you have a character that has, you know, a, a, an old Labrador that you know, loves him and he loves the Labrador, you always automatically sort of like that character. Um, have the character have a severe handicap, whether physical, uh, emotional. Uh, have them have a, um, have them be very good at what they do. Now, I always use the example of the character uh, from the television series House. You know that the doctor uh, is a nasty individual. Yeah. You know, he's rude. He's stuck up. He's uh, got an addiction problem, but he is so good at what he does that you like him. So there are these. Again, there's a few others. I guess they're on my. I think it's somewhere on my the writer section of my uh, website. I think that I actually have them listed. Yeah, we'll link to those. They are there. So they're uh, they're just a great way of. You know, I, I always judge, you know, a lot of times. With, it's very easy. I'm always worried when I get this comment critique from uh my critique group, which is, you know, gosh, your 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 villain is more exciting and appealing almost than your main character. Because the villain is, you know, they get to kill people and they're they're you know, living like, you know, like Everybody wants to, you know, do things and say things that that villain can say and do. Uh, whereas, you know, your straight-laced hero is a little harder to to make them seem as, as exciting. So so what I often have to do is I'll look at that list and what have I done in the first you know 15, 20 pages? Have I established you know one or two of these sympathy builders? And if not, I will fold them in there. You will see all of a sudden my character is you know petting a cat. You know I'm not above you know doing a little cheat to get that that relationship established.
2: Yeah, that's uh, those are techniques that are really great for scene level stuff. As far as global story, I know that you've said that the magic formula is murder, magic, and mayhem. Uh, th- how does how does that work? Um does that work for most genres, or are there some
0: genres where that might not work? I don't think so. It, again, it, murder magic and sounds like fantasy or sounds, yeah. like it, but but they apply it to everything. But basically, murder is, you know, you have to have, you have to establish jeopardy. You know, there's gotta be it has gotta be you know, that a sword of Damocles, you know, hanging over somebody's head. There's gotta be that threat. Uh you need magic, you want a sense of wonder developed in the story, whether it's whether it's a mystery or whether it's a uh, thriller whether it's a science fiction whether it's a horror you want some a little sense of wonder in the story uh, and mayhem you know you have to build a roller coaster you know, you've got to have those sudden drops and twisted turns and things that no one expects uh you know, you've got to construct that roller coaster so no matter what your genre is i still think it applies you need a little bit of threat you need a little bit of wonder you need a little bit of you know plotting that is a, a fun journey for the readers to go on
2: yeah yeah totally agree um i've i've uh read that your process is two hours of, of words at first thing in the morning, a two-hour break, and then another two hours of, of drafting. Is that still your process? And if so, what do you do in that interim between those two sessions?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I'm pretty regimented. And I went back to when I was had a full-time veterinary clinic and was writing in cracks in time. You know, I basically was working in a bedroom community where I was very busy in the morning, very busy at night, but I had a long lunch break. So I decided, you know, that's where I'm going to try to fit in writing in my life. Because at that point, I kept dreaming of writing. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to walk into a bookstore one day and see my book on a shelf? Uh, and so then that's why I joined a, a little uh, the Sacramento Suburban Cl- Writers Club and found my critique group. But uh, I think any writer has to make that accommodation in life. Where do you fit writing in your daily life? And to me, it was that that lunch hour. And I thought, you know, I've got to figure out how to how does this work? So first of all, I'm going to write three pages a day. And then I kept qualifying that no three double space pages a day, you <laughs> well, not every day. I'm gonna do it five out of seven days of the week, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you have to keep pulling back, you need to find out. Eventually, I found out this this is comfortable. I can still keep my day job, but still get some, you know, get three double space pages produced five out of seven days of the week. And surprisingly, you can get a novel done relatively quickly at that pace. That those pages accumulate fast. Uh, I'm a slow writer, though. It takes about an hour for me to write one page, one double space page. So I thought if I ever get rid of the day job, i will be much more productive. And of course I am, because now I don't have to be a veterinarian the other you know, 12, 16 hours of the day. Uh, so now I do five double spaced pages a day. I find that's about my middle. It. It's five to six pages of double space because it takes me, that's about five to six hours of writing. And sometimes I'll do it in one sitting, sometimes it's split up, but I have to get those five to six pages done every day. Uh, So it's a bit of a carrot and stick for me. And then if I get right cracking at it at, at, you know, right in the morning, I can theoretically maybe get my pages done, you know, middle the afternoon, maybe catch a matinee and do something else. Whereas if I'm, you know, checking Facebook too much or, you know, researching, thinking I'm working, I'm not going to get that fifth or sixth page done until midnight. So uh, there's some incentive for me to, to start early. So, but most of my days are pretty structured. You know, I will do uh, again, two pages, about two hours of work. Uh, Then I'll, you know, take a little break. Sometimes I'll walk the dogs. Sometimes I just want to get out there and do something physical to get myself out of my brain space a bit. But I also will uh often use that time for the business side of writing, you know, uh doing stuff on social media, uh, calling people, uh, answering email. Um so again, most of my, my day is probably still maybe a six to eight hour day. It's just breaking up into chunks that are divided by either the business side of writing or or further research between those gaps. So that's my typical day. It's still about a, you know, maybe a six to eight hour day. Yeah.
2: And you're still getting those pages in during your research periods too?
0: Yeah, actually, you know, I do two books a year and how I accomplish that is that that 90 days of research, I'm still, I'm still writing. So even that, that that 90 days of big research, uh, a lot of times those days are a little longer than the days where I'm, I'm actually between research periods. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that there's that overlap. So I'm finishing up one book while I'm doing my 90 days of research for the next book. So by yeah. the time i am done one book, I'm usually ready to crank right onto the next one. So I can still keep that routine, that momentum. Uh, so doing pages.
2: Highly disciplined. That's that's the way to produce. That's
0: excellent. Well, it's, you know, doing, you know, I, I, I wrote for about four years before I got published. I wrote for another five years after that, uh, still being employed as a vet. And so for, you know, 10 years I was writing you know, and working full time. So I, you know, had to be regimented, and it just became ingrained. So even when my day job, day job sort of, you know, went from, you know, sold my clinic to a corporate group, stayed employee, but at least got rid of the business hat. And then I went from, you know, full-time to part-time to weekends and stepped away. So it wasn't an abrupt, I'm, you know, stopped and I didn't go cold turkey. So there was a period of, you know, where I weaned off of that, but I just kept my, kept my routine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as, uh, as we kind of pull the conversation to a close, I have one more question for you sure. that I hopefully will be fun for you to answer. There's no right or wrong, but uh, given your experience in, in the industry and watching what's been happening and all the changes to publishing, uh, sure. what's the future of publishing look like from your perspective?
0: Everybody was concerned that the publishing world was going to go the same path, uh, the music world. Where everything was going to go digital, you know, very few people were going to buy albums except for some hipsters out there, and that everything was going to be, you know, uh, download to the cloud. And I think we'll see some of that. We'll see a little bit more shifting to, to the digital space, but I I, I think there's a, a large chunk of people that still like the physical book, whether it's you know having a, your own library. You know, I keep my library here, and maybe I'm a little bit of a luddite in that I still like to read books in a physical format. But to me, one of the joys uh, of reading is I'll look around my my, uh, office here and I'll see books that I read years ago, and it it just triggers memories for me. It's like almost like a big memory bank here. Uh, You know, I tie a lot of my history and my life to to that book or this book. Um, So I think, you know, we've seen a bit of a plateauing in that shift from from print to digital and the consumption of, of more digital versus print. But we're seeing that plateauing a bit, and I don't think we'll ever lose that completely. And uh, you know, what's one good thing is that we have a lot of different media in which to tell stories now. You know, audio is becoming much more popular because a lot of people are commuting, and they can you know, pop a story in there and you know, listen to a book uh, while they're commuting. Um, and there's also a bunch of different vehicles. You know, a lot of my critique group members uh, they they are they say self publish, and they've had you know good success with their self publishing. So it's another avenue for, you know, writers where they don't have to necessarily try to get through the gatekeepers in New York in the, in the big five publishing world. You know, you have great success stories now in the, in the self-publishing world. Um, and you don't even need to necessarily be somebody that, you know, gets that million copy sale on, on Amazon. There are a lot of people that are just uh, they're they're doing a book a year, two books a year, and they're they're selling on a regular basis and repetitive basis that they're they're able to to get rid of their day jobs and become full time writers. So that's one great advantage of the, of the new digital media. There we have it, the interview with
2: James Rollins. Uh, so you want me to go first, or you want to go first?
1: <laughs> Why don't you go first this time?
2: Yeah, all right, I. There there are a number of things that really stuck out to me. Uh the the one thing I've been thinking about since I, I talked to James was the way he observes what's happening in the world and and keeps it. And he keeps journals. And uh he, he even I, I know you guys can't see on, on the on the podcast, but when I was talking to him on the video, he had a whole shelf full of journals and scrapbooks and just odds and ends of research that he that he keeps and, and he goes back to those and uh and some, you know it could be years later and some, some of it he uses most of it he probably doesn't. but I love that process more than anything and it's really started me thinking about how maybe I can formalize something similar in that always keeping like a notepad or something in my pocket so I can capture ideas or thoughts or, or observations.
1: Well, I use a program called Simple Note. Um, which I, I love. Um, it's it, it's got a, a program for my Mac. I've got another one on my iPad, another one on my phone. Um, I've even got it set up with my Apple Watch, so I can hit a little record button on my Apple Watch, and it'll automatically drop the text into SimpleNote. Note. Um, and they all sync up with each other it, literally in real time. So if I type something on my Mac, I can see the the letters appear on you know my my other screens. Um, and it's just a text editor. You can't even do bold or italic or anything like that. But the fact that it syncs is what's key for me. Um, and I've got you know Simple Note document for pretty much every book that I've ever worked on or ideas for, for various books. Um, and, and that kind of, I guess it evolved from what he's doing, you know, which is taking the newspaper clippings and, you know, organizing them into folders and binders and, and things like that. And, and I mainly, I, I went to Simple Note because I wanted it to be portable. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, you know, I was still working a full you know, day job and, you know, but I was thinking, you know, I was physically at my day job, but I think mentally I was in my book <laughs> and, and I, and I liked having, you know, all those things at my fingertips. Um, cause what would end up happening before that is I would scribble something down on a post-it note and I would stuff it in my pocket and, you know, hopefully it would make it to my desk at home. Um, but you know, a lot of, a lot of ideas got lost. Um, and also the, the middle of the night ideas that come up, I, simple note for me is, is a good solution. Cause if you know, if you think of something at three o'clock in the morning and you tell yourself you're going to remember it when you wake up, you're not going to remember it. Um, and you can obviously keep a notepad there that works, but you know, I, I, I prefer simple note. I, I guess the key for what he's doing is that he goes back and he looks at it again. Yeah. Um, because a, a lot of people will do that. They you know, have all these newspaper clippings and stuff and they just start to pile up and pile up and they never actually look at it again. Um, and before you know it, you've got a closet full of all these potential ideas. Um, yeah, you know, so he seems very disciplined. Um, even his research, he said, "What ninety days he puts into research, and, and that's it." Not yeah, he cuts himself
2: days. off at ninety days. That's impressive.
1: Yeah, well, for the people that do research, I tend to just make it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll hit Google when I when I have to. Um, you know, I've got a couple experts on on you know, speed dial for for specific things. Um, but for the most part, like I, I I don't know that I could take time away from writing long enough to do research. And I think he did mention that he's, he's researching like the next book while he's writing the
2: current. Yes. He doesn't stop drafting even while he's researching. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yes. I think I would have to have that overlap too, because I I get really twitchy if I don't actually write, if Mm -hmm. I'm not actually, you know, putting words to paper. Um, so the research process, editing, all those types of things, you know, it's a a necessary evil. It's something you've got to do, but I, I need to be writing.
2: Yeah. What did you think of his murder, magic, and mayhem theory?
1: It's, uh, he had a couple of theories that he put out there. I mean, that, that's definitely one of them that I liked a lot. Um, he, he mentioned that he thought we were actually in the middle of biblical end times. Yes. Um, which which <laughs> I thought was kind of interesting. Because yeah. <laughs> now, now more than ever, it sort of feels that way. Um, it reminded me of a line uh, from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, the Keanu Reeves version. I don't think this is actually in the other the original <laughs> one, but but he, he mentioned this isn't the end of the world. It's just the end of you. The world's going to go on. Um, <laughs> that, that always that always struck me because you know we've got all these you know people think that we are close to that you know that point, um, but the bottom line is, is you know one of our stupid acts ends up killing off humanity. You know we're just going to be another blip on the you know the planet's radar. It's going to end up healing, and you know before you know it, you know everything's back to normal again. Um, yeah. But he did have a couple theories out there. That, that was one that just kind of stuck with me. Um, the, the idea of giving um, your characters pets or, you know, thing, things along those lines to humanize them. I, I never actually made a conscious. I, I, I didn't think about it, but he's right. You know, like if it, it's always good to to create that, but giving them a dog, giving them a cat, giving them an elderly neighbor or a mother or father that they talk to, um, you know, a little twist. It could be one sentence here, one sentence there, but that's that's enough to create that humanity um, in, in your character. Yep.
2: Yep, and uh, I'll add uh, just a, a final observation, as more of a meta comment. I I found uh, in much the same way, the conversation went with Jeff Deaver. I felt like uh, James is a natural teacher, and yeah. uh, and you can tell like he's very good at communicating his ideas in a way that's that's um, easily explained. And uh, and I, it's it's always a delight when when you can talk to a, a great communicator who also happens to be a great writer. Those those skill sets don't always overlap.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure he's got, if you go to his website, there's probably um, events you can go to where he's going to be teaching or performing, you know, doing some type of seminar. Um, I know he's done that at Thriller Fest in the past and he, he's taught, you know, some of the classes there, um, but definitely somebody worth, worth catching if you, if you can do that.
2: Yeah. was a fantastic guy. Great writer. Rand really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. All right. So uh, do you want to announce next week's? you want me to announce next
1: week's guest? I am and look to see who next week's guest is. Oh, ah, so.
2: okay. Well, will be a little surprised for you too then. Yeah, uh, next we got. next week we have Alec Shane, who is a oh, literary okay. agent at Writer's House. I, I think you you were in touch with him prior, maybe.
1: Yeah, I I know Alec. Um, we we've actually we go back a couple of years. Oh. Um, he's he he represents the Horror Writers Association. I think he's done a lot of their anthologies for them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with my, my current agent. Um, but, but Alec is one of those guys, he's one of the few agents where I'll go out and just grab a beer with in New York and just kind of catch up with, um, cause he's a fun guy to talk to and he works his butt off for his clients. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that for sure.
2: Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I, and I unofficially, I think Alec will be our first literary agent that we're interviewing on the show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He actually, he is. And we, we've got a couple of guests coming up that are a little different than what we've been doing. I, I think that that's good. I mean we've, we've had a lot of really you know, great authors on, um, but I, I think it's time we explore some of the other you know, pieces of this, this big puzzle.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also have uh, just in case anyone's wondering, we also have a number of nonfiction authors coming up. So I know we've been focused primarily on fiction writers so far, but, uh, we have some fantastic nonfiction writers who have other platforms and are going to come and talk about business strategies and, uh, and things of that nature. So, yeah, we, we have some nice diversity of, of uh, conversations coming up and I'm really looking forward to it. Cool. All right. All right, man. Well, uh, then to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.